Well, good morning. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Uh, this is our last week in our series, The Bible's Story. Um, so for those of you that like to read books and then skip directly to the end to know what happens, uh, this is your week. This is it. Um, we are finally here at the end. Uh, it's been a joy walking through the story of the Bible together, finding out God's redemptive plan as it's, uh, as it's revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, and this week we'll get to the, the last part of that story um, there, in, beginning in Revelation chapter 19. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is a, a future and that you know it. I thank you that, that the future is not unclear to you, that it's not um, something that you just kind of observe and see it happen as it unfolds. But God, you are very aware of what's going to happen in the end. And you are, you are actively working to bring about the redemption, the, the correction of everything that's wrong in the world. And God, I thank you that you know and that we can have confidence in you with the fact that you will fix everything, that there will be redemption, and that your plans will be fulfilled. Pray this morning you would, you would stretch our minds, you would open our eyes and our hearts to, to see what you have in your, for us in your word this morning, and we would, we would be willing to respond the way that you have called us to respond. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, if you've ever built something or created something or made something and you didn't want somebody to look at it before it was done, you probably use the excuse, well, it's a work in progress. Don't, don't, don't look at it yet. It's a work in progress. Or, or maybe someone like demands to see something that you're making and you're not quite finished with it yet, so you, you try to make excuses for all of the flaws that are in it uh, at the moment. You say, it's a, work, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Uh, when I was little, my uh, sister and I were, were painting at an after-school program. And uh, my mom walked in and she wanted to see what I was painting. Uh, I was painting this beautiful hot air balloon uh, masterpiece. And she, um, she wanted to see it, and I told her, no, no, not yet, not ready. It's a work in progress. Uh, and so I finally, I finished the, the hot air balloons, I gave them to her, she had to be sorely disappointed. It was not worth the wait at all. I mentioned this before, not an artist in any way. Um, but I did know, as I was painting, I had an end goal in mind. I knew where the painting was going, and I knew that that painting wasn't there yet. I knew that it had flaws, that it, it was not yet complete, and so I didn't want anyone to look at it because I was just waiting. I knew that it, it wasn't quite where it needed to be. It was still a work in progress. Well, nine weeks ago, we started looking at the story of the Bible, the Bible story. We started looking at God's redemptive plan for the world. And we, nine weeks ago, we started in Genesis chapter 1, where everything in the world was perfect, where everything was, was pure and right and at peace with God. Everything was ordered and organized to bring God glory. And we, we saw a literal paradise where everything was at peace. And the next week, we saw Genesis chapter 3, where sin came in and marred that world. And we get the world we have today, a world full of brokenness and bitterness, a world full of evil, a world full of, of sinfulness and oppression. We, we see that world because sin entered into that perfect paradise from Genesis 1 and corrupted everything about it. It corrupted us. It corrupted everything around us. The entire world is broken and in desperate need of redemption. And so the following weeks, we walked through God's plan to redeem the world to fix it and to get it back to Genesis chapter 1. And that plan ultimately culminated in Jesus. 
that by his death and resurrection, Jesus made for himself a people of God. He brought about, inaugurated the kingdom of God. He brought himself a, a people for God who have been redeemed, who have been saved, who have been set free from sin. And we get to see a glimpse of that future, that, that beautiful, perfect Genesis chapter 1 future in the people of God. But not one of us here believes that we are currently living in that Genesis chapter 1 reality. Like not one of us here would look outside or look within ourselves and think that, hey, this is perfect. This is the paradise that we've been waiting on from Genesis chapter 1. What we all know to be true is that this is a work in progress. That, that God's plan is not yet complete. John was very aware of this. See, Jesus, one of his disciples, the apostle John, uh, a few decades after Jesus died and rose again, um, John was very aware of the fact that this world is still broken and, and that God's plan is not yet complete. You see, John, a few decades after Jesus' resurrection, John is the only disciple left. More than likely, all of the other disciples had been martyred by this point, and he is left alone, exiled on this island of Patmos, and, uh, and he sees every day the same broken reality that we see today. He wakes up every morning hoping, waiting, longing for, for the world to get back to that Genesis chapter 1 reality, but knowing that it's not there yet. And so God gives John a vision of what's to come. God opens John's eyes so he's able to see the end of the plan. So he's able to see the, the, the plan come to its fullest uh, to reach its pinnacle and to reach its completion. And so this morning, we're going to look at the end of the story. We're going to celebrate with John and, and, and rejoice at the fact that there is an ending, there is a moment when we will get back to the Genesis chapter 1 reality that we are supposed to live in. And we're going to start in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. The way we're going to see the end unfold we see it unfold in three parts. We see a moment, and then we see uh, just utter chaos and madness, and then we see a masterpiece. We're going to start with the moment in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the, the Almighty, excuse me. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the end times theology, the book of Revelation, are notoriously difficult to interpret. Uh, there are a lot of different things that you can believe 
based on how you interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, so we're not going to get into all of those, those details that people debate about. We're not going to get into whether or not you believe in a rapture. We're not going to get into whether or not you believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ or a literal seven-year tribulation. We're not going to get into to any of those details of the end times that you can debate about depending on how you interpret different passages in Revelation. But there's one moment that you and I have to understand will happen, literally. And it's the return of Jesus Christ. There will be a moment when Jesus will return. In order to fully understand that moment, we have to go back to Acts chapter 1 with a, dis- a conversation with the disciples. The disciples, remember, if, we, if you remember our conversation on Jesus a few weeks ago, the disciples had all of their hopes and their dreams placed on Jesus. He was the Messiah. He was the one to fix everything. He was the one that was going to restore all of the brokenness in the world and get us back to Genesis chapter 1. They knew that he was that Messiah. And so Jesus died, he rose again, and he's talking with his disciples. And his, his disciples say, hey, Jesus, when, um, just real quick, when are we going to get back to that? Like, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to get us back to Genesis 1? When are you going to fix everything that's broken? And Jesus says, that day is coming. It it is coming. Don't worry about it. It is coming, but it's not your job to know when it's going to happen. It's not for you to know the day or the hour. It is coming, but it's not your job to know when it's going to be. And so the disciples have to sit there, think, uh, have to be sitting there and thinking, well, you know, Jesus has an army to get. He, uh, he probably has some other plans that are going to cause some delays. I mean, we obviously didn't see the whole dying and rising again thing coming, so uh, he might have some other things like that up his sleeve. So maybe a year or two, maybe a decade at worst, but Jesus is going to fix everything and get us back. And then Jesus starts lifting off the ground and flies into heaven. Like as those thoughts are flying in the disciples' minds thinking, all right, this guy is going to get us back to Genesis 1. This guy is going to get us back and restore the kingdom, uh, and we're just ready for it to happen. Here's Jesus, we're ready to go. And then Jesus leaves, like flies into heaven. They are stunned. Can you imagine? All your hopes, all your dreams are in this guy. You're ready, you're you're on fire, ready to go take the kingdom, and Jesus just flies away. Like not literally, not just runs away, walks away. He literally takes off the ground and flies into the sky, into heaven. They are staring up at the sky, just, Done. Like well, <laughs> we need to adjust our timeline. Uh, didn't see this coming. Stunned. So naturally, they're looking up, and angels come and talk to them. Say, "Hey, why are you guys looking up?" As if they had no reason to look up into the sky. Uh, they said, "Why are you guys looking up? He's going to come back. Just as he left, he's going to come back." He will fulfill that day when everything will be returned to Genesis chapter 1, where everything will be redeemed. He is going to come back. That's what John is describing. That day, that time, that's what John is describing in Revelation chapter 19. He gets to see the moment when heaven is opened up and coming on a white horse is Jesus Christ, returning to do the job to completion, to finish the job that he started, returning everything in the world back to the way that it's supposed to be, destroying all wickedness, all corruption, all brokenness, putting an end to everything wrong that happened in Genesis chapter 3 to get us back to what we were supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1. But the Jesus that returns is not like the Jesus that a lot of people on the fringe of Christianity or, or who have grown up in church culture, it's not like the Jesus that they've fallen in love with. The Jesus that returns is not the pale, frail, 
tolerant, accepting, love wins Jesus. Like that's not who comes back. Look at me with some of the descriptions of Jesus. He's, first, he's coming back on a white horse. That signifies victory. That signi- that's a military accomplishment. He's coming back on a white horse. He is uh, he, in righteousness, verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus isn't coming back with love and flowers and peace. Jesus is coming back to make war on the enemies of God, and he's doing so in righteousness. It means all of the enemies of God, all those who are, who are rebelled against God, all those who are, who are rejecting the authority and the rule of God, Jesus Christ is coming back to put an end to that. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. I don't know about you, but if anything ever has flaming, fiery eyes, you don't look at it and say, oh, what a gentle creature. I have never heard a fly. Like Jesus has fire in his eyes. He is ready to go. He is, he is coming back with judgment. That's his M.O. In verse 12, he has a, uh, on his head are many diadems. Many crowns. And these crowns are made out of gold and silver and stones. These crowns are not made out of thorns this time. Like this time, the crowns on Jesus' head actually reflect who he is, the King of Kings. Like he is the, the Son of God. He is the, the Almighty. He is the Messiah. He is, he is God in flesh. We see that later on in verse 12 when he says, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is utterly different and superior to everybody else who's ever existed. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God, God in human flesh. Colossians chapter 1 talks about Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is, this is God in flesh. That's what Jesus is coming back as. Not, not cloaked, not, not veiled. There's no question about it. When he returns, everybody will know that is God. That is the one who is in control. That is the one who has all authority and praise and honor. There will be no question about it. We see in verse 14, uh, excuse me, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this is, this is more than likely not his blood. Like when, we, when we think of Jesus, we... We think of the fact that he did lay down his life, that he sacrificed himself on a cross as, an, as an, a sin offering for, for every single one of us, that if we place our faith in him, we can be covered by his blood. So he did pour out his blood to save us. But that's not the blood that's on his clothes. Because the, within the context of Revelation 19, the, the cl- blood that is on Jesus' clothes is the blood of the enemies of God. And this is a conquering warrior who rides into battle. And when Jesus returns, it is a bloodbath. And he is putting an end to the enemies of God. There will be no more. There is no more tolerance. There is no more waiting for redemption. There's no more hoping that things will turn out right. There will be no more chances. When Jesus returns, he returns as a conquering king. With blood on his clothes. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, when he comes, he is coming to put an end to the enemy of God. 
when he's coming, the sword of his mouth is coming to put an end to those who are in rebellion against God, and he will rule over them harshly. If you can get to this point and still think that this is a, a frail, tolerant, loving Jesus who would never, never harm anybody, who's a pacifist, and if you think that, if that's still the image of Jesus that you have in your mind, that's the Jesus that you think you're worshiping, check out this next sentence. When Jesus returns, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. When he comes, he comes in the fullness of the wrath of God. That's Jesus as he returns. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus returns, there will be no question he's the one in charge. He's the one we should have been worshiping and praising and glorifying forever. He is the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. When he returns, there will be no question about that. He is the King of Kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. And not one person, not one enemy, not one ruler will be able to say otherwise. When Jesus returns, he's returning as this conquering king. But the Jesus that returns is the same Jesus that left. We can't worship one Jesus without worshiping the other. We can't have in our head this idea of a loving, pacifist, peaceful, tolerant, accepting Jesus and worship him and reject the idea of a Jesus who is coming back to finish what he started. <laughs> a Jesus that's coming back to restore the entire world back to Genesis chapter 1, to, to do away with and get rid of all brokenness, all sinfulness, and all rebellion against God. You can't love one Jesus without the other because they're one Jesus. And so if your view of Jesus, Jesus is incompatible with the, the Jesus that's returning, then you have the wrong view of Jesus. If you cannot reconcile in your mind the fact that Jesus is coming back as a conquering king, then you have misunderstood what Jesus came to do. He had a role and a plan, and he started that plan by dying on a cross for you and for me so that we can be part of the kingdom of God. And he's, he is delaying his return to give people opportunities to enter into the kingdom of God. But when he comes back, there will be no more. And he will finally accomplish what he set out to do, which is restore all of the world back to the way it was supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1. When he comes, he is a conquering king to put an end to the enemies of God. So what happens to us? What, what happens to us when Jesus comes back? Well, we see following the events of this moment, it's complete madness. And there are some other events, uh, events in between uh, and, and different interpretations of those, but eventually, between this moment uh, and, and the future, there's complete madness with what happens to every single one of us. Look with me in chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this, this starts out following the moment of Jesus' return. Eventually, what you get is the devil, the enemy of God, thrown into the lake of fire. This brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, language earlier uh, in chapter 20, in verse 2, uh, it says, uh, an angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And so this brings us all the way back. This is imagery that brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were living in perfect paradise with God and then entered into the garden, the enemy of God, controlled a serpent and tempted Adam and Eve. And that enemy of God has been, has been living and active here in the world, doing everything he can to thwart the plan of God. He, that enemy of God, the devil, has been alive and active here in our world for all of history, working to thwart God's plans and purposes. And here we see finally that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, they're going to take a, a little bit of explanation. The lake of fire is what we think of when we think of an eternal hell. That's what, that's what is being described there with the lake of fire. There's this eternal dwelling place of torment for those who are, not, who are, who are enemies of God. And so the devil is, is taken and he's thrown into the lake of fire. This is a common misconception uh, about the devil. He is not the ruler of hell. He is not... Hades in Greek mythology, where he's ruling the underworld. He is, a, 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 he is thrown into hell just like those who are enemies of God. He is tossed into hell, and he is tormented day and night. And so at the end of days, after Jesus returns and he's setting all things right, he takes the devil and throws him into the lake of fire where he will be forever separated from God and tormented day and night in hell. And then following that event, all of the dead are raised and brought before God for judgment. Every single one of us who have ever lived stand before the throne of God to be judged by what we've done. The, the imagery there, it says, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. So, so death itself is giving back its victims. And what, God, what, the, what Revelation 20 says is God took death and he threw it into the lake of fire. Death itself, God does away with it. And he throws it into the lake of fire. This is him fixing all that is broken, getting rid of all that is messed up, all that is contrary to his plan. So he takes death, he throws it into the lake of fire. And every single person who's ever lived is standing before God for judgment. It says books were opened. And in these books are everything that we've ever done. Every person stands before God and, and has their deeds, has their life laid out before them. And they're either judged as guilty or not. But the problem is every single one of us are guilty before God. Every single one of us has sinned before God. Every single one of us are guilty of rebellion against our Creator. And so every single one of us should stand before God with the condemnation of guilty. 
labeled upon us. Because when our lives are laid bare, when the book is open, we'll see that we have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And that we have rebelled against God, that we have sinned against him, and we are guilty. So on that day, it's actually going to be a glorious day for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Because a second book is mentioned, and that's the book of life. So on that day, when we come before God and our, our deeds are laid bare and everything that we've ever done is, is evident before God, and we stand before him, we should be called guilty, we should be called a sinner, we should be labeled an enemy of God, but because our name is found in the book of life, because of Jesus, we'll be declared innocent and forgiven. And that will be a day where we are not labeled an enemy of God. We are labeled a friend of God, a child of God. So for us, it'll be a glorious day to stand before God and be declared innocent because of Jesus. But for those who do not know Jesus, whose names are not listed in the book of life, it will be a terrible, horrific day. To, to know that everything you've ever done is going to be laid before a holy God and to know that you will be found guilty. You can imagine the the churning in your stomach as you're walking towards the throne of God. You know that you're next. You know that, that everything you've ever done wrong, all your rebellion, all your sinfulness, all of it laid bare before God, and you know that you have no excuses. That there's not one thing you can offer God where he'll say, okay, that's, that's fine, that's a valid excuse. There's not one thing that you can do to correct any of the things that you've ever done wrong. You don't get any bonus points for the good things that you did in your life. You don't get any bonus points for the times that you spent in church or did religious things, you get no bonus points before God. You know that you're going to stand before him guilty as a rebel against God and labeled an enemy of God at a time when God is doing away with all of his enemies. Like you can imagine that, that churning in your stomach and that, that feeling of inevitability that there's nothing you can do at this point. You are guilty. It will be a terrifying day for those who do not know God. It will be a tragic day for those who live their entire lives without placing their faith in Jesus. The Bible says in verse 15 that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So they follow, those who do not place their faith in Jesus are labeled an enemy of God because of their rebellion, because of their sinfulness, because of their brokenness. They are labeled an enemy of God and they follow the devil into the lake of fire. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's what awaits every single person who does not place their faith in Jesus. So what's happening here in this moment is God is fixing everything that's broken. God is doing away with everything that's sinful, everything that's evil, everything that's wicked. God is doing away with all of it. And if we are rebels against God then we're a part of what's broken. We're a part of what's evil, and we do not have a place in the kingdom of God. So it will be a terrifying, terrible day for those who do not know God. That's why uh, I, I mentioned and labeled that the day is, is full of madness. Because the, the chaos of people thrown into the lake of fire, the chaos of people wailing and crying, knowing that they have no excuse before God, knowing that they, there's nothing they can do to make up for everything that they've ever done, and that they failed to recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
be a day full of madness as God is fixing what was broken, getting rid of all sinfulness, all brokenness, all wickedness in the world. But what's left is a masterpiece. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Take note that this immediately follows verse 15 in chapter 20. So those who are thrown into, uh, whose names are not found in the book of life, he was, they were thrown into the lake of fire. But then in verse 21 we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Notice a, a new heaven and a new earth are formed because God is getting rid of everything that's broken. God is getting rid of everything that's been corrupted. And we found out in Genesis chapter 3 that the whole created order is corrupted, that our sin, our brokenness have corrupted everything, and so God does away with it. God erases it and destroys it, and he creates a new heaven, a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And those who live in it, those whose names are found in the book of life, who inhabit this new earth, who are part of the kingdom of God, they really experience a Genesis 1 reality that they've been waiting for. They experience that peace of, with God and that rest they've been waiting for. I mean, look at the language in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And does that sound familiar to you? Because it should. What that sounds like is a direct reference to what Israel was supposed to experience, what God promised Israel. God promised Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we, we see the tabernacle and the temple built in the land of Israel because God was going to dwell among his people. But the problem was they weren't worthy. They were broken and corrupt and sinful, so eventually they were cast off separated from the presence of God. They were exiled from the land. They weren't worthy to dwell among God, for, to have God dwell among them. They were not God's people. He was not their God because they rebelled against him. But here in the new heaven, in the new earth, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus will live experiencing that Genesis 1 reality that Israel was supposed to experience where we will be at peace with God and he will live and dwell among us in a perfect relationship with him. What does it look like to have a perfect relationship with God? In verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, the former corrupted, broken world. Everything that was wrong, everything that was broken, everything that was corrupted is all done away with. And all that's left is life, Eternal life with God. Skip down to chapter 22. Just kind of a 
final icing on the cake to get us back to Genesis chapter 1. We see in, in, in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is, this is in the new earth, and specifically in New Jerusalem. Show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, not light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That imagery there should bring us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and to Genesis chapter 1. In verse 3, when it says, no longer will anything be accursed, he's pointing specifically to the world and, and the created order that was accursed because of the, the, the fall in Genesis chapter 3. All of the curses that were brought about because of sin are done away with. They're all reversed and they're all corrected. But in Genesis, uh, in, in verse 2, we see that there's the tree of life in this new heaven and new earth. Back in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden because the tree of life was sitting there in the Garden of Eden, and God didn't want them to eat of it and live forever in their broken, fallen state. But here in the new earth, the tree of life once again sits on a river for those of us who know Jesus to take part of it and to eat it for the rest of eternity, to enjoy the the life and the fruit of an eternal relationship with God. What we see is a complete reversal of everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, an eternal life found in God. Here's the big idea for the end of the story. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to put an end to God's enemies. If you, if you take nothing else away, take that away. Jesus is coming back to put an end to God's enemies. So here's the thing. Know which side you're on. Know which side you're on. Because for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the day that Jesus comes back will be a glorious day where we will celebrate and praise the fact that we're no longer surrounded by brokenness and sinfulness and pain and death, but we'll be, uh, we'll be surrounded by life in a perfect relationship with God. So for us, it's a glorious day. But if you do not know Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him, the day that Jesus comes back will be terrible and terrifying for you because you will realize that, that you've worshipped the wrong things. You've placed your faith in the wrong gods. You have, you have followed the wrong things and tried to seek glory and praise and honor and the things that do not deserve it. And Jesus will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to put an end to the enemies of God. And you will stand before God with all of your deeds judged and laid out before God. And you will be found guilty with no bonus points for doing anything good, with no bonus points for being religious. You will be found guilty before God and separated from God forever in hell. So if you do not know Jesus, the day that Christ comes back, will be a terrifying day for you. So I plead with you, I beg you this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, do that this morning. Change your side. Know for sure which side you're on. 
Because on that day when Jesus comes back, it will be too late to change. He is coming back to put an end to the enemies of God. That is not a day you'll be able to switch your side. But today, for as long as it's called today, you will have the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus. So this morning, I beg you and plead with you, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, do that this morning. Know which side you're on. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who know whose side we're on, we need to live with one eye on today and one eye on that day. Knowing that the only thing that matters today are the things that are going to matter on that day. So don't get worked up over little trivial things that will not matter in the end. Don't, don't feel worried and anxious about things that are not eternal and that will not matter at all on the day that Jesus returns. But while we are here, be the mouthpiece of God. Like share the message of salvation and eternal life with a world that needs to hear it. Like while you're here, you're here for a purpose. To proclaim the glory of God. Proclaim the gospel with the people who are around you. Make sure that the people around you know whose side they're on. And live a life that is ready for the return of Christ. The way that you live and, and the, your, your understanding of this world's brokenness, but the coming world's beauty and perfection should have you proclaiming with all of the saints, come Lord Jesus, come and fix everything that's broken. You should be able to, to praise that and pray that with excitement. Come Lord Jesus and fix everything that's broken. If you can't pray that today, because you know that that day will be a terrible day for you, I invite you to change sides this morning. In just a moment, we're going to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. So if you know today you need to place your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus and to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is an end that we can celebrate. That as your people, we know that we... The sinfulness, the brokenness that we encounter in this world will be done away with, and we will have eternal life with you. God, we look forward to that day, and we celebrate the fact that that day is coming. But God, while it's still today, and while your plan is still in progress, God, I pray that we would be bold to proclaim the gospel. I pray for those here who do not know you, God, that they would take advantage of this opportunity to change sides and to place their faith and trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, we love you. We thank you that, that you are both a loving, caring, gracious God, but also a God who will do away with all wickedness and evil. God, I pray that we would, we would recognize your grace and we would live in light of it. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray.